Welcome to episode number nine of Acquire and Scale. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo, and on this episode, we have Sanquita Salvaraja. She is the managing attorney at Salvaraja Law PC, a civil transactional firm located in Boston, Massachusetts, with satellite offices in New York. She is also the CEO of Bistico, a business educational platform creating profitable CEOs. And she has also worked with startup as an advisor, strategies, and reluctant therapies, and also an outside general legal consult to over 150 businesses. Before we get into this episode, I want to share a quick disclaimer that this recorded conversation is for informational purposes only, and it is not legal advice. Transmission of the conversation is not intended to create and viewing or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Viewers and listeners are advised to seek professional help if they are concerned about specific legal issue. Hey, Shankita, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I'm excited to talk to you today. Uh, I think it's the first time that uh, we're going to be getting into some experience in both practicing law and also being in the mergers and acquisition world yourself. So I would love to share a little bit of your background and how is it that you get involved in the mergers and acquisition world? Great. Thanks for having me again. I am a startup attorney, small business attorney, generally that is really just business law. So I've been practicing business law for 11 years, state of Massachusetts and New York. And what we do is we are outside general counsel. We start companies, incorporate and advise companies all the way to exit, exit being sale, acquisition or merger, whatever that entails. So during the lifeline of the entire business, we are their lawyer at that time. And I know you have involved with multiple ventures. So you want to share a little bit about that and why now you have a new venture, which we're going to be talking about? Yeah. So we've been attorneys and for quite some time. And what I was planning to do was really be a deal advisor. And what that does is just advise people on their deals on how to get the best ROI on their venture, whatever they're doing, whether investing, buying, or actually selling their venture. We started a separate company besides a law firm called Bistico, which is actually a company designed specifically to educate CEOs to create profitable companies. What we were finding with the law firm, actually, where people were coming in to start a company, but they weren't equipped or didn't know what they needed to know to actually have a profitable company, right? So you can't just have a dollar and a dream come up with a company. It doesn't work like that. That's right. You've actually got to understand how to build, scale and exit at the same time. So there is a big onus in knowing your exit strategy before you even start a company, right? So knowing where the exit doors are before you enter the room and actually teaching people how to scale to that end. So that company actually started out as a way to educate. We do seminars and workshops and we have contract templates for people to use along their growth. But my personal jam, what I love is M&A, mergers and acquisitions dealing. And this is where we deal with actual investors and buyers of companies that want to come in to build out their portfolio or understand how to use their assets in such a way to grow out their specific portfolio purpose, so to speak. Right. So it's a different end of that. But we are business, all business. That's it. So every spectrum of it. 
And I know mergers and acquisition, it's such a broad industry and it, you have all kinds of different players. So the investment banking, the private equity, all these big players, but there's also a small segment of the market that it's where a lot of e-commerce and online companies are being Absolutely. exposed. So is that something that you guys are wanting to tap into that, that smaller niche? And we're talking about less than a million dollars in net profit all the way from a hundred K to a million dollars. Uh, do you guys work with those type of clients as well? Absolutely, absolutely. So it's anywhere from 50K to 15 million, right? Whatever you think is a small business. So a business is a business is a business, plain and simple. Whether it's a uh, mechanic shop to a hair salon to an actual consulting service, right? It's just actually what exactly are the assets? What are you selling it for? And absolutely everything is negotiable at that point, okay? <laughs> just remember that everything is negotiable. <laughs> And when you talk about being a deal advisor, what is it, some of the things that you do specifically when you help a buyer of a business? So let's talk about a buyer that want to purchase an e-commerce store or an e-learning platform. What, what would it be the services that you offer to them? So the first thing we ask any buyer is what is the purpose of it? Why are you buying it? Are you buying it to build? Like, you know, that amazing book that's out there, but are you buying it to build or just buying it to acquire? There's a difference, right? So are you using it as a strategic tool or using it as a vertical just for you and your purposes only, right? So knowing that ahead of time allows us to actually extrapolate and create a good strategy on how we can increase their ROI when they do buy, right? So if they're buying specifically to build in the sense that they want to create this as part of their portfolio, and then we have to talk about brand cohesion. Are we making this brand part of your major portfolio or are we having it stand alone as well? We can ask these questions, but it's really up to the buyer to answer them, right? So it might be a little bit of soul searching, <laughs> portfolio searching, you know, and advising as to where this is going to go. Another big question that we ask is, what is your gut telling you? Like, it's a one of those woo-woo things that we ask, but it's a big deal because there I've seen deals go south because people didn't trust their gut or something isn't lining up, right? Most likely than not, it's not. Plain and simple, right? But one of the things that we offer buyers or people that are trying to invest is we give them a process and we say, this is what your phase one is going to look like. The first questions that we ask them and we do a consultation to ask, you know, where this going, if, you know, we can advise them and give them possible options and strategy around that. Great. Go forth. Afterwards, what we do is walk them through what the phases of buying a company looks like. Okay. So you're in the negotiation, you get to the LOI, which is a letter of intent. Then you send it off to the lawyers to negotiate the finer print of that. Keep in mind, most of your due diligence is also happening at that time too, right? And to actually have your team ready as well. So advising on who your team players will be, whether it's your accountant, number one team player is your accountant. Second person is your lawyer. Third person is your financial planner. So this is the person, and a lot of people don't think about this. This is the person that actually advises you on what happens after you have acquired your asset. Or even if you're a seller, if you've sold your asset, if you've sold your company, what do you do with that money at that point, right? So some people use their accountant for that, and that's fine. But you should also have a solid financial planner as well, which goes along with the overarching purpose of your portfolio, what you're trying to do with that. We advise on all stages of that and say, this is what it looks like. We don't take any equity in any deals. We're just a third-party independent consultant that goes in and talks to that. 
if you're talking about an investment banking like a private equity, it's given that you're going to have a very strong group of lawyers that are going to be dealing with everything and doing everything that they got to do. But when you're talking about transactional, let's say you're buying a million and a half dollar business and you say, well, I'm going to be doing a lot of the due diligence when it comes to operations. But then a lot of the questions that I've seen people ask me, like, how do you go and decide when is it the right time to hire a lawyer? Because again, the perception may be, well, that's going to cost me ten, twenty thousand dollars It's going to be a retainer fee. What I love about what you're offering is you are becoming also a business consultant in those deals and advising in the deal. And there's multiple ways for you to provide value. It's not just like, hey, here's this high fee retainer that is going to cost you all of this. And people are afraid of that. So I think you're offering something different now, right? Yeah. So keep in mind, you still need a lawyer. Here's the deal. Okay. So you have to become friends with your service providers. And I always push this on my own clients in the sense that your service provider team is going to be your default advisory board. So your accountant is your team player, is your captain. Your secondary captain is going to be a lawyer. Okay. And the third person is going to be your financial advisor and whatever banker and so forth, the other finance side of it. So uh, having them on board and letting them know proactively what your plans are will take you farther than anything else. The reason is I'm barred in only two states. The idea is regardless of whether uh, you are acquiring a company in Kansas or perhaps in California, it will go far for you to get a lawyer within the state of the acquisition that you are trying to actually go ahead and acquire, right? Because it does, you do need state-specific laws for that. If I could say anything is don't be afraid of the service providers. It is a necessary cost that will save you money in the long term. So think of it as an investment, okay? So the investment in service providers will is a key part of your deal. So if you want to structure it, regardless if I'm a consultant or not, I will still push these service providers on you, right? Into saying, hey, get your team ready. What is your team saying about this? The team is actually the executing part of your strategy. What we do is we are the strategy. And then we just, we still need the executors in there, right? Got it. I think that the question really, it will be about when a buyer is wanting to invest. I know you have to build your team and they have to be compensated. They have to be there. There's no discussion on that. But even before of that, I think someone like you and your company it is able to add a lot of perspective and insights and advice even before of all of that. Is that yeah. something that you recommend to do before even sending an LOI or what stage do you think it's the best? Absolutely. So you, again, it comes back to strategy. So even if it's something where you get on the phone with us or your other service provider, whatnot, and sit down and talk about, hey, I have a target acquisition. This is what I want to buy. You see, the, the first question is, I'm going to ask why. Why? Why Why do you want to buy it? Okay. is Are you bored in the pandemic? What are you doing? Right. <laughs> okay. Or two, what is the return on you buying this investment in the next three months, six months, and 12 months? So you, I need you to articulate to me what the value you're hoping to get from that. Okay. Then we can figure it out from there. And then we talk about the grander scheme of it. Again, we talk about what is the purpose of your acquisition. So even just talking through that for like an hour or two kind of gives that clarity. And once we have the clarity, we can say, hey, these are your options if you go down road A, B, or C. Perhaps while you might be going for a digital marketing company, maybe what you really need is a completely different one-person copywriter. So this is really just a brainstorming to see, hey, maybe you don't need to buy 
maybe you just need to acquire or engage one specific contractor to obtain the purpose of what you were going for, right? So it's more of a clarity call than anything. If after all of that, you decide you want to still buy and it looks good to continue on with the target acquisition, then we set up the team and we say, go forth. And now we can negotiate on your half for the letter of intent, which is what gets you to the point of the simple terms of the acquisition with the proposed target. Or you actually engage any of your other service providers to do that in whatever state that you have at that point. Yeah. So the clarity call is really key at this point. And I think that the purpose of every single interview that we do in the show is actually highlighting people like you and companies like yourself that are able to add value for potential business buyers and people that are looking to scale those companies. So I, I love that clarity call and I'm definitely going to have one with you. And You're I, welcome. Yeah. I'm going to sign up. I actually am working on a deal right now that I'm really, really excited about. So, but even the question that you're making right now to the audience, I'm like, wow, I need to answer that. <laughs> oh yeah. It'll be in our intake form. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Wonderful. All right. So the next couple of things that we wanted to cover today is some of the recommendations that you have for buyers. So of course, there are certain legal documents. There's the operating agreements that should be in place if they have any partners or any other investors. But do you want to chat more about what are the legal elements that should be considered when buying a business? So uh, we talked about having a holding company, which you call SPV, right? To yep. actually buy or any sort of company. So absolutely do not buy anything under your individual name. You should have a company, okay? To protect your own personal assets. Key. Absolutely. When you do do that, if you are coming in with other partners or other investment partners, getting your own foundational documents in check is obviously key. Now, I always push on foundation because your foundation creates a solid base for you to buy any acquisition at that point. So what we're talking about is, are you on the same page with your partners about any acquisitions going forward? Okay. How will you handle any new partners coming on? If you do buy a company, does it come with anybody in that company that wants to join your team as a partner as well, too? So uh, knowing all of these ahead of time, this is why it comes back to strategy, right? The pre-call and having those uh, sorted out. So even cleaning up your own foundational documents, if you have an LLC, your operating agreement should be clear as to how someone can sell their own stock, invest their stock or lead the company. Okay. What should happen if someone passes away? What should happen if someone dies? Uh, same thing. Or who is disabled? Okay. And uh, things of those, the minutia of it, knowing this ahead of time when you go in to any negotiation gives you that sense of assurance as well to know that your home base is protected at least. And then you can go forth and negotiate from a, a more solid stance at that point. So getting your company, getting the internal documents with that company sorted out and confirmed. Also, talking to your own potential partners. If it's just you, that's great, okay? But you do need your team, your accountant, lawyer. I have to keep saying that, okay? Yeah. Third part is also talking, if you do have partners, talking to your partners about what whether they are aligned in your purpose when you are buying any new acquisitions or investing in any sort of thing. You have to have some sort of agreement or unanimous agreement in that because it can't be divided, at that point when you're going out to actually acquire. Okay. So get your house in order, basically. Very, very simply put, get your house in order first before you start looking for other houses. And then also 
understanding the purpose of the acquisition and how you're going to fold in that new company into the way that you are already running your business. Okay. This goes to strategy. Is that new acquiring, is that new acquisition going to be part of your own brand? your umbrella brand? And do you have to change the name of the new company? Do you have to bring them into your own standard operating procedures? Do you have to include them as a client offering to your current clients and so forth? Okay, so kind of learning or understanding how that new acquisition is going to fold in is the second thing. So all the things I'm saying is before you even step out of your own house, right? (laughs) You have to know all of these things before you even go forth and decide what to do. And then knowing all of that, it actually helps you focus on what type of acquisition you want. Just a simple act of doing all of this will allow you to hone in on what you want. Can your assets, can your current capital support this new acquisition? Not just in year one, but post-sale, but in year two, year three. How does this new acquisition, how will it perform in your portfolio? There's many moving parts to this, right? Knowing all of this and not just waking up with a dollar and a dream and saying, hey, I'm going to buy a digital marketing agency. This doesn't work like that. You got to understand where where it fits. Because at that point, if you do buy an acquisition and it doesn't perform, it's lost money at that point, right? And we don't want that. We want you to have the greatest return on your investment at that. When it comes to these documents that you just mentioned, so even having all this stuff in place, there's still a lot of things that are going to be related to the seller of that business, right? So you as a buyer, you come in, take over, but there's going to be a lot of different things that the seller is supposed to not do. Or for example, you give you a, a simple case where if you bought a business and of course the seller has access to all the email list and have all the kind of relationship with those clients. I mean, ideally they will not be reaching out or soliciting any new business from those lists and there's non-compete, non-solicitation. But outside of that, I think there's a lot of things that the seller could still do that will create a lot of consequences for a buyer. So what are some of the recommendations legally that you think should be in place? So once you get past the LOI, you should also have a confidentiality provision in that LOI, letter of intent. So the letter of intent is kind of like a simple agreement that says that, hey, we are now going to execute this sale, whether it's an asset purchase or a full purchase sale agreement. Okay, And in that, it could be the fact that there's no other competing interest that will come in during that time of your due diligence as a buyer when you're doing that on the target acquisition. So... In that sense, it it does kind of box in the seller so that they don't go elsewhere and start shopping the deal, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. And then one way, what really ties up the seller at that point is what you come up with in the asset sale agreement or the PSA, whatever the deal docs are, okay? Whatever type of acquisition you are doing at that point. And in that, you can limit the seller on what you mentioned, non-solicitation clause. What, What that means is basically the seller does not Uh, contact or solicit the previous clients, previous employees or personnel of his selling, his or her selling company. Okay. Non-compete is that they don't create, they don't, after the sale, they don't go out and create a competing company versus this selling company that they are selling to you. Okay. And NDA is similar to a confidential agreement. It is that they don't discuss the terms of the sale and the terms of the agreement to anybody else post-sale at the same time. Okay. So those are the major common three ends. A fourth end is non-disparagement. What that means is they don't talk ill or negative or post negative opinions about you for a certain amount of time, whether two years, three years or indefinitely, whatnot you decide. Okay. So that's really the fourth end. 
So consider those aspects that should be in that. And that's something that you will want to trust your lawyer into including and to negotiating as well. Okay. So the, but those conversations can start coming up in the beginning, right? Any deal you're doing with any potential seller or buyer, whoever you are at that point should be firmly rooted in open and honest communication. It's a transactional relationship, but it's still a human relationship where this matters. Okay. Because you do want to give the professional courtesy as well as the fact that you don't want to misrepresent any facts. The idea is to be as clear and transparent throughout all processes, all of this process, because of the fact that you don't want this to be an issue post sale. Right. So be as clear, no fraudulent behavior, no misrepresentation and explain the facts as they are. I wanted to share some stories. So if you have any acquisition stories that has gone not so great and now what is some of the things that we can learn from those stories? So when it didn't go great was because what we talked about was this poor communication between the buyer and the seller and then mismanaged expectations. Okay. (laughs) So expectations are the first step to disappointment. So, but at the same time, just clearly explaining what you are both trying to achieve with the acquisition is key. Right. And also not being transparent of every step of the way. So one time that it really did go bad, I represented a client and I think it's actually what I call a successful failure. Okay. Let me explain what that means in the sense that I had a deal with a client, it was a $5 million acquisition. I represented the seller and she just wanted to get out. She was burnt out. She wanted to sell it. She's been working on it for quite some time and she was ready to just get on a cruise ship and sail off, literally. <laughs> I'm sure some of your listeners can relate. And so what happened is we she was selling it to a friend, okay? A friend that she's known for a while that was known as an investor. And what happened is we couldn't find any confirmation of the financials. So in the sense that he couldn't prove that he could buy this company in that sense. So for a long time, she trusted him. She was like, no, he wouldn't screw me over. Let's get through it. He had his lawyer. I I was the lawyer. And we were still trying to communicate, trying to get this against the gun too. We were trying to close it before a certain time period and come through at that one point, my gut at that point was screaming like something's not right. We got to step in. At some point I stepped in and I said, we might need to pull this. And she was hesitant, was sad because remember she wanted to just jump out. (laughs) She didn't want to deal with this any longer. But at that point it was like, do you want this person, whoever's taking over your company to dilute what you have worked on for all this time? The idea is to sell the company so that it becomes something more And then you can look back and say, hey, I was a part of that, right? I created some part of that. And she was just like, no. And there was some denial. Don't get me wrong. There always is. Okay. But in the end, she had to pull back. And at that point, she had already given away 95% of the keys to the company. And she had to get back all of it at that point, you know, through a lot of like searching. And it was a digital and a physical consulting service. Okay. So she had products that were already there. She pulled back and I'm really happy to hear this. But when she pulled back, she also took back ownership as a CEO. And as of last week, she has pivoted the products and the services to make it into something that she actually likes to run. And now the company is even better than what it was. So this was what I would call a successful failure in the fact that while things might not work out as envisioned, it might be for the best. Right. But at any given point, here's the moral that I learned. A, if my gut is screaming, say something. 
Okay. <laughs> if your service providers or if your lawyers are or your consultants are like, this doesn't feel right, listen, please listen, because they're looking at it from a dispassionate third party view. And so they don't have any skin in the game. They're like, this doesn't seem right if X, Y, and Z is not fulfilled. Why is it not fulfilled? A hundred percent of the time, if it's not fulfilled, something's not right. So think about that, right? And the second part of when it has gone great is when people actually have a plan. So I'll give you a story about how I have a client that I was counseled to five of his companies. And about four years ago, he said to me, he goes, Sangeeta, I'm going to sell all five of my companies and I'm going to take my family and I'm going to live on a boat off of the coast of Malaysia. I was like, all right, cool, dude, let's do it. Okay. (laughs) And he did it. Every year we sold off a company. Okay. And they were all different types of companies. So real estate to a franchise, to an investment company, to a consulting company, very disparate, but he had a plan. Then this is where you're, and they were all separate companies within his portfolio. There was no brand cohesion other than the fact the common denominator is he owned it, but he sold each one and true to form, he is literally quarantining on his yacht off the coast of Malaysia right now. Okay, so he's doing good, right? But he had a plan and he knew how he's going to do it. But he was also a savvy, he was a savvy businessman. So he knew who to sell it to and what to get the greatest return, right? So this is where planning is so key at this point. Another time, it doesn't even matter about cost. I'll give you another example where we sold a blog, just a blog, with a readership of about 60,000 people. So we nearly sold that for $2.8 million dollars. A blog. Let, let me let's let's take a pause right here and think on how to start a blog right now. Okay, right. So this was amazing, and it was a husband and wife, and they just sold their blog, and they went to Dubai the day after the closing, and they were like, "Hey, peace out." And they just amazing, yeah. Amazing. So you have to know, like, it, money does not matter. It's like what exactly people will pay for, and what's the purpose of it. Yeah, and I love it. I think that there is such power that comes when understanding that the business that you work so hard, even if it's a blog, in the future, it is a valuable asset that other people are willing to buy. Mm -hmm. So I think also the goal with this podcast as well is sharing that with those hustles out there, the people that are actually making it happen all day long. They're working really, really hard with their business, online business, and they have no clue that, yeah, somebody's willing to pay half a million dollars. You know, we're not talking about a $50 million acquisition like in Silicon Valley, but still half a million dollars can change somebody's life. Or like you say, $2 million deal, it's forever life changing. (laughs) Right, right. Any common mistakes when people are buying companies these days? I think I touched upon it. It's just not having a plan for it and also not following your gut when that is going down and also not understanding certain terms. Okay. So don't have a working knowledge of what the terms are. So anybody that is assisting you, such as your accountant or your lawyer, is actually elevating your current knowledge of that term. Let me explain. Okay. So in the sense that If you don't understand a term, you should go to your accountant or your lawyer to explain what that means and what the ramifications are, okay? So tax, legal, and business are intricately entwined. So one effectuates the other. If you make a tax decision, there is a legal ramification and a business ramification, okay? So if you make a legal decision, there will be a tax and a business ramification at that. So 
start thinking in a triplicate fashion with that. In doing so, understanding what the tax ramifications of each of your legal decisions will go a long way, especially if you are currently negotiating or looking to buy a certain acquisition, right? It all ties into purpose and what the performance of that acquisition will do for you. All right. So I can give you a couple good resources. Is there something called the Founder's Pocket Guide? Okay. So understanding startup valuation terms. Okay, so what is a good valuation method for the type of company that you are buying? So there's fair market value, which is commonly known as FMV. There's book value, which is basically what is the numbers, what are the numbers on the books, right? And then there's EBITDA, which is actually the multiplier of what, how it's supposed to perform. And so deciding which one of the three, those are the top three, would be the prevailing valuation method for how you are going to determine the cost or the acquisition cost of the company. Okay. So knowing those ahead of time is also good. So not knowing anything before you enter into a deal, is not a great place for you. Okay. Have some working knowledge, research what you're looking into, what types of valuation is key within or common within the industry you're trying to buy within. Okay. So with a firm market value, it's a grayscale. So you can actually include goodwill in there, non-compete clause in there. You can value those type of assets. Then you turn to your accountant and say, how much would you value a non-compete within this industry? How much would you value goodwill in this industry? What does that mean? Customer lists are one thing, but it's the performance of the customer list that's really going to get you paid, right? Remember the 60,000 subscriber list? What the people buying the blog were, they weren't buying the blog, they were buying that subscriber list access to those people more than anything, right? So that's really where knowing the purpose of it, again, knowing how you're going to value it and knowing what the different types of valuation methods are, and then knowing how it's going to perform afterwards will go a long way in you also negotiating your own deal if needed. And you have worked with all kinds of different businesses and you mentioned startups, but there's this also topic about startup valuations when they are doing the projection that their company, whatever they're going to do, even most of them, actually, they don't make any money and still they have a $50 million valuation. So can you explain a little bit more about the difference between the three valuations methods that you say, which is our, again, we're talking about here in the show about acquisitions for profitable businesses. So most of the cases that I've seen in that people that we bring in the show are profitable business, cash flow generating, they go buy it and grow it and scale it, whatever they want to do with that business. But there's also this idea that people that don't understand this acquisition world, they build a blog, like you said, and now they think that their blog, it's worth $50 million because they see the startup valuations in Silicon Valley, which is very different from what you just mentioned, right? Absolutely. If you're a seller of a company and you, let's just use the blog example, right? And you have X amount of uh, readers, a subscriber list, right? Of like, let's say 10,000 readers, okay? Now, have you monetized your blog? That's the number one question. Just is it reading itself, does not make money. I hate to say it, even though reading is fundamental and please keep reading. But it's the sense of, are they buying anything off of you? Are they taking any of your affiliate links? What kind of monetary value are you getting from your list? Okay. So any seller or any buyer is going to look at that. They're like, what's the value of this list? It's just a bunch of people that want to read it every week. Great. But it's how you can pitch it to a potential buyer. Like this list would be great for you if you are trying to expand your portfolio and bring in more clients. You can take this list and now pitch your product. Well, if I'm buying this blog, I'm going to be like, well, does 
this blog list actually, or the reader list have a, have a track record of buying from you? Big question, right? Are they going to trust your word? Or are they just using you for entertainment value, right? So these are the nuances of going back and forth and playing that mental chess, which you're going to actually play out in real life when you're trying to sell your your blog list, right? So you have to make your assets so valuable that any buyer would find that attractive, okay? You have to literally pimp your product at this point, okay? (laughs) You've got to pimp your product and your services and say, this is the potentiality of monetization here, okay? How can you sell this? How can you use this? What can you do with it? And that will help you into negotiating and increasing your ROI and your sale cost as well, too, what you can get in return for that. But if you're just a blog with 10,000 readers, that's great. But that's a hobby. Okay. (laughs) Until you pitch it in such a way that it becomes something of value. Great. And so lastly, before we show I definitely want to talk about you and your company and really expand more on that and what exactly are you guys doing. But SPB company structures, LLC, what are the benefits and why is it that you think you mentioned that's the way to go with an entity instead of just purely your own person? So being an individual buyer opens your personal assets up for liability and risk, right? So always protect your assets by creating that company shield, that legal shield that comes in the form of a company, whether it's an LLC or corporation. Now, LLCs have a hundred percentage interest points. So at that point, all hundred percent have to be utilized and verified. You have no options for option pool at that point, generally. Okay. With a corporation, you can authorize set amount of shares and issue a portion of that and keep about another portion or as outstanding stock or what we call the option pool for future investors or future employees. Okay. So corporation gives you more flexibility for future gains. That's why most investors like using corporations for that sense, if they are bringing people into their holding company. Okay. Now keep in mind, a company can own another company as we know with acquisitions, right? And so for that reason, this is a conversation you really should have with your accountant and lawyer as to see what's the best strategic entity to have a holding company in as an LLC or as a corporation, okay? Given your current taxation landscape and decide on the state that you will be incorporating in. Hot button states are Wyoming, Delaware, Nevada, New Mexico, the hot four, okay? Because of the fact that they have low taxation thresholds, okay? But still, Keep in mind, keep in mind, you will still need a registered agent if you do not already reside or do business in those states of incorporation. Okay, you will also need to file foreign resident taxation or foreign taxation for that state as well. Again, conversation with your accountant as to the ramifications of forming in a foreign state other than your place of residence or where your business resides. Okay, so that's major key issues that you need to look out for. So this is also all part of getting your house in order before you step out of it and start buying another one. Okay. So when you actually have these conversations, it'll give you more clarity as to the purpose and what you're going to do with that company. But number one advice, do not use your personal name and your personal individual status to buy a company, create a company first. If I build this entity for acquisitions and I'm going to go ahead and buy a company, an online company, and I'm looking at acquiring this e-commerce store and I have the option of either doing an asset purchase or stock purchase, do you have any pros and cons on those different things? 
It really does depend. Okay. But uh, let me explain the difference between an asset purchase and a stock purchase. Okay. So an asset purchase is where you just buy the assets. So assets can be in inventory, equipment, trademarks. Okay. Intellectual property are considered assets, blog lists, reader lists, what uh, not anything that is considered an asset that can be transferred over is a considered asset. Stock purchase is when you actually buy the company or some portion of the stock within the company and the assets as well. Okay. So an asset purchase agreement, you know, APA is just the assets. A stock purchase is the company and the assets together, the whole kit and caboodle with that. And that, again, really depends on what you are going to do with the target acquisition. Okay. And this is a great negotiating point for anyone is to say, Hey, you know, you've got, you've got this inventory, you've got that equipment and you've got that trademark. We're just interested in your trademark. We don't need the inventory. We don't need the equipment. We don't want your company. Can we just buy the trademark at that point? Flat out. That's an asset purchase agreement. Very simple. It doesn't have to be all the assets. It could be some of the assets too. Think about that too. Okay. So again, goes back to what are you going to use the target acquisition for? And then with the stock purchase, it comes with liabilities as well for that company, right? It do all come with liabilities. It's defining the liabilities and what you are expected after that, right? So stock purchase means that basically you take ownership of the company and therefore there has to be a full transfer of ownership in that state of incorporation of that target acquisition. It also means what happens to the employees and staff of that acquisition, will they stay? Will they go? Will they also be part of the transfer? Okay. Contracts are considered assets, just so you know, so they get transferred over as well. And then also what happens with the brand? Brand is big here. Brand is so big because again, we talked about, is there going to be brand cohesion with the rest of your portfolio or is it going to be a standalone acquisition that just continues to operate as it it's doing well, right? So the planning portion of that is if you are going to fold it into your portfolio, there has to be brand cohesion with the rest of your portfolio. So I'll give you an example. If you are called Trees RS, okay, and uh, you specialize in trees, whatever it is, and your holding company is, we have trees incorporated, all right? You decide to buy a landscaping company, okay, which is called Red Maple LLC, all right, which is a tree landscaping company. But there is a cohesion here in the sense that you are a tree company, right? So you're buying a landscaping company to go in under your tree company. Now, the question is, does Red Maple LLC now have to change the name to become We Are Trees Incorporated, which is the holding company? You got to make that decision before you decide on acquiring said company because it helps in doing the complete transfer because clients and investors, if they don't understand change, and most people are resistant to change, right? So you have to slowly bring them in and giving them forethought and giving them foreplanning and advance notice helps in the transition. So you don't lose any customers along the way during that transition, right? That because you want to preserve the ROI, you want to preserve the actual transaction costs. You don't want to lose any customers during the sale after it gets to you. What's the point of that? You want to preserve that as much as you can during the entire process. That's right. Got it. The next few minutes, I just want to spend some time again talking about your company and some of the best ways that people can work with you guys. I want to emphasize that even though for you, it may be simple already because you're used to it. For regular people, it may be scary to talk to lawyers. And I think you're not a traditional lawyer. You are now a deal advisor. And I think that's what I love. And I want to emphasize for people listening that this is a completely different 
set of services and help that you can get from somebody like Sankita. So I also want to say that not all lawyers are scary. I just want to just reiterate that too, right? I mean, I'd like to think that I wasn't scary in the last 11 years. And I don't think that attorneys, attorneys generally, especially a deal, a transaction attorney is, you should be able to have a relationship with that attorney because the more information they know, the more they can help you. Okay. So please, 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 if you don't get anything from me being on this show is just to be like, make friends with your service providers. Okay. Use them as tools, use them as profitable tools to help you in your investments and having that conversation and saying, these are my proactive goals. Can you help me get there? Them knowing this is a great way for them to strategize and include that sense. So yes, please definitely have that even in whatever state you're in. As a deal advisor, we give you a third party uh, review of what you're looking to do. Okay. And then where you want to go with that. So it might just be a clarity call. It might just be us going through your current portfolio and saying, this looks like this would fit in or just actually talking you through where this is and then giving you the next steps forward as to how to go about that. Okay. And again, there are no stupid questions, especially if it leads to more greater knowledge and a better investment on your end. So in that end, there there's no judgment here. So I'd like to say my colleagues as lawyers and accountants, they also feel the same way in the sense that they were here to actually assist you. So don't be afraid. This is exactly what we are supposed to do as our job. So take advantage of that. So what is the best way for people to find you and what you offer? Currently, you can email us at ss at selvalaw.com and then we can introduce you to our deal advisory system and go from there. Currently, it's just invite only. So again, we do a process about how to vet you out as well, too. And again, if we can give you any information that would help you on this, I named the Founders Pocket Guide, which is a great resource you can get online or Amazon. So check them out. This is very short reads on different things such as term sheets, preferred shares, valuation methods. So you can go online right now and order those and get that. So we get no referral or any affiliate links for that. It's just a really good resource for any founder or anybody that's looking to acquire, just to increase your own base knowledge on that. Okay. And again, read, read, listen to podcasts such as this, trust your gut, but verify, right? Throughout the entire deal. (laughs) So good luck. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else that you would like to share with the audience before we wrap up? It's an interesting time. Okay. And it's a great time to buy given the, our current landscape, but make sure that it's not a impulse buy. And it the same rules apply here where you still need to know whether it fits into your portfolio. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been phenomenal. I really appreciate your knowledge and I love what you're doing. And I definitely want to have you back in a few months once you got launch all these things that you're working behind the scenes. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Gabe. This has been great. All right, well, this is it for this episode. Until next week, this is Acquiring Scale Show, your host, Gabriel Murillo, and thank you so much. 